please stand for the reading of God's word. From Acts, the fourth chapter. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were preaching the people and they're preaching, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whatever is right in the sight of God to whether is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. All, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together and the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, um, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of the God of God with boldness. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. It's a long passage, but it's a story that can hardly be broken up and, quite frankly, shouldn't be broken up. In order to approach it this morning, I'd like to pose to you the question, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? Now, psychology would have us understand that that question is really a question that you cannot help but ask. Every human being is always asking the question, who do I want to be? And looking down a, a future road and saying, what kind of husband or father or wife or mother or friend? What kind of employee? What do I want to happen at work? What do I want to achieve? How do I want to make myself better? What weight do I want to lose? We, we constantly look and say, how do I want to change and who do I want to be? Now that, frankly, is a bit of a stressful question. Because if we can just decide, well, I want to be this person and I have it within my power to make myself that person. It's a question that's stressful in the way that it's bared down upon some of our young people. And maybe some of you in high school or in college, you felt that stress. What major am I going to choose? What direction am I going to head? What classes do I have to take? We could consider a young man named Jake who uh, was an outstanding student, accomplished in many rights. He uh, aced his AP classes, he ran cross country, he participated in model UN conferences. He was a bit of a high-strung kid, always a bit stressed out, but he arrived at his junior year and he collapsed, essentially. He hit a wall and felt like he could proceed no further. This get-it-done student now became a student in the fetal position on the floor of his room refusing to go to school and saying that I can't get anything done. It's just impossible. It's all utterly overwhelming. And Jake puts it this way. All of a sudden, I couldn't do anything. I was so afraid. You know how a normal person might have their stomach lurch if they walk into a classroom and there's a pop quiz? Well, I basically started having that feeling all the time what to do. Jake's parents took him to his primary care physician, and he was put on a, a, a dose of Prozac, which helped a little bit for a little bit of time, a fairly common antidepressant. But it didn't really change what Jake was struggling with. So more medications, and some seemed to work great. Some returned Jake to his old self for a time, 
but then would be adjusted, and other medications would, would not help, would make Jake much worse to the extent that he would seek to harm himself. And he'd do that and then would end up being hospitalized, and the parents then would bring him home, and therapy would begin again. But it was a frustrating existence in which Jake felt paralyzed and overwhelmed by anxiety. Now, anxiety, something with which every human being is somewhat familiar, is on a great rise in terms of the way that it's affecting people in a very acute fashion. We've been talking a little bit about some of the social ills that are remarkably on the rise culturally, that historically in the 20th century played a small role in the background of most of life and now are being, uh, being noted for the debilitating way they're affecting our society. We talked about loneliness in previous weeks. And this morning we're, we're talking a little bit about anxiety and uh, depression. Just to give you a little picture, anxiety has overtaken depression as the primary reason college students seek counseling services. 62% of college students reported overwhelming anxiety in 2016, up from 50% in 2011. In the last 10 years, the number of hospitalizations for depressed teenagers has doubled. Now, this is hardly something that we would say is only affecting young people. In the last 20 years, antidepressants have become by far the most commonly prescribed medication for adults. And just to be clear, I am in no way against medication and have a number of good friends, good friends in pastoral ministry, who uh, survive by antidepressants. And surely there have been days where antidepressants sounded like a good idea to me. But what I'm trying to know is something bigger, something societal, something cultural, rather than any of your particular uh, struggles with uh, anxiety or depression. I was speaking recently, I was at a party and talking to a local physician, local primary care physician. And one of the things he said that fascinated me, he said, I was never prepared for the way in which, uh, in my course of practice, in my lifetime, depression would become such a dramatic uh, aspect of, of culture and the rate at which I would be prescribing antidepressants for people. So, I'm, I'm, he went so far as to say, I'm so uh, puzzled by this phenomenon that I have to hypothesize that there's some environmental factor that we have not yet discovered that is promoting depression culturally. So in other words, what he's saying? He's saying depression is becoming so widespread in his medical practice and his experience with patients He's saying uh, there must be something in the water. Like I can't explain the rise apart from there being an environmental factor that we just we don't know about yet. Which may be the case. I don't know. Uh, and again, if you you may be struggling with anxiety or depression, you may be on antidepressants. Uh, and and if you are in that place and you are wrestling to to meet God, to find God in the midst of that, then I am all for you. And I am not trying to, uh, to belittle that struggle in any way. Again, what I am trying to raise to you is th this much larger question, which is this. If there is a correlation that we can observe between cultures that decide that we can engage society and create an existence apart from God and his story, and in correlation to that is the rise of loneliness and anxiety and depression, then can we ask the question, is there something that's frankly just depressing 
about life and a story apart from the narrative of God. I know correlation is not causation. But if we look to the West, to the nations that have walked away from God and said, we're going to create a society and a culture, politics, economy, that have no reference to the divine, and we're not really interested in that ethic, we'll make up our own ethic. And at the same time, in all of those cultures, you see this dramatic rise of loneliness and anxiety and depression, particularly stateside. And could we say, is, is it not somewhat depressive to simply engage life apart from God? I would say absolutely it is, because... All of a sudden, you, not only are you saying there's not a defined and agreed upon purpose to life, but you're also saying at the same time that you are responsible to establish those purposes. You are, you are responsible to establish the direction that you must head and, what, and where meaning exists. And that's an incredible weight to bear. I don't, just thinking about bearing that weight, that I would be responsible for writing my life and deciding what will make me happy and my ethic and how to treat people makes me anxious just thinking about it. Now, what's interesting when we consider our passage is we see two kinds of people right, who have decided to engage life on two different roads. Our groups of people are these, the disciples on the one hand and the Sadducees on the other hand. And they've decided that we're going to understand what's happening in, in the midst of our story differently. We're going to have different commitments and we're going to go in different directions. And those different directions have different outcomes. They have different results for the people based on the decisions that they make. And so I want to ask three questions of our passage this morning. Number one is who were the Sadducees? We have to understand that to understand what's happening in our story. Number two is what difference does faith make? And number three, I'd like to return to the question, who do you want to be? So first, who were the Sadducees? Now, in verse 2, we read that the Sadducees are greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Why? Who are the Sadducees, and why in the world would they care that this ragtag bunch of disciples is preaching the resurrection? Well, it's pretty interesting when you read through the New Testament because in the Gospels, who's front and center? It's the Pharisees. The Sadducees are in the background. But when you get to Acts, it flip-flops. The Sadducees move to the foreground and the Pharisees recede to the background. Well, what's the, again, what's the difference between the two groups and why does it matter? And just an extra tidbit, uh, I wanted to tell you all that I always grew up wondering why Sadducees was not pronounced Sadducees, right? Why do we pronounce a word with two Ds with a G sound? And I was too proud to ask, so I want you all to know that in ancient Greek, if you have two Ds or two deltas, it makes a G sound. And that's why we say Sadducee rather than Sadducee. And that puzzled me for decades. And I take great light, delight in removing that perplexity for you. Or perhaps you already knew that. Regardless, the Sadducees were a group that were different from the Pharisees, particularly in this regard. The Pharisees were uh, very concerned about uh, what God thought of the people and how God was going to reward or punish the people. So your average Pharisee approached life in this sense. They thought, God seems to have left the building. Remember, the prophets have been silent for almost 400 years. Israel is getting kicked around and the snot beat out of them by the Romans. And it essentially seems that God, this strong Yahweh, is really, for whatever reason, he's not present. So the Pharisees say, well, why isn't he present? They say, oh, he's not present because of our sin. So we're going to get very, very serious about being righteous. If the law says uh, I can't um, 
if, I can't, if the law says I can't have a soda, I'm going to make an additional law that says I will never walk within 50 meters of a soda machine. This is how the Pharisees approached the Torah. Laws upon laws that made sure that they were absolutely righteous. And they thought, God will look upon our righteous and come back. And once he comes back, we're going to be on top and the most important people because we are so righteous. So they're pursuing power through their righteousness. The Sadducees were different. The Sadducees had taken an opinion that was more like, you know, God created things and set things in motion. And yes, he gave us Torah, but let's be honest. He's incredibly distant. He's not very present. We don't believe in bodily resurrection. Nobody's going to be raised from the dead. And nobody's going to be rewarded or punished after death. You know, these are just all, all stories you've come up with. This is our life, and we get to choose how to live it. And yes, you want to obey Torah, but other than that, it doesn't really make any difference. Right? So essentially, they were saying, yes, we believe in God, we believe in Torah, but there's no, there's no afterlife, there's no reward and punishment, so I'm going to make my life the best it can be now. So what decisions do you think the Sadducees made? Well, I'm going to make the most money, I'm going to build the nicest house. I'm going to have the best car. Right? This is because there's nothing really after death. And so I'm going to be connected in power. And it, it, the Sadducees were essentially an aristocracy, connected wealthy families that took the Torah seriously and tried to influence political affairs. And the reason they're annoyed at this time is because Jesus' disciples, more particularly, have come on the scene and are preaching there's no, uh, that there is a resurrection. Not only is there a resurrection, right, but they've done this powerful miracle uh, in the name of Jesus that the Sadducees can't explain away. And so they have to come to terms with what is happening here. Now, we might be a bit uh, sympathetic with the Sadducees. Right? If we describe somebody who says, yes, right, just, just for a minute in your mind's eye, right, I'm describing to you a Sadducee. They believe in God. They say they believe in the Bible. All of their decisions are oriented around self-gain. Uh, right? Bigger estate, better car, more money, advancement of kids, more power and influence in the community. Right? Does it sound like any Christians you know today? Right? It's not a story that, that's, that is that distant from us. Right? You know, we all know some Pharisees, some people who who love to trumpet their fundamentalism and, and rain on everyone's parade and make sure everyone knows how righteous they are. And we all know some Sadducees, and we all struggle with both tendencies, right? That we think of God as distant, and therefore we can do whatever we want, and we'll decide to engage whatever we want. Now, why would we be sympathetic with them? Because the Sadducees didn't feel, uh, did indeed feel that God left the building, that God had deserted Israel, Israel was on its own, and so Israel might as well do whatever is in Israel's best interest to move forward. And I think at various times we've all felt that God has been distant, that God has left the building. And as a result of God's departure, you know what? Apparently, God, you don't seem to be really looking out for me or my family or what we're trying to accomplish, so I am going to take a few steps away from you, and I am going to start to organize my life and make decisions that, that care for me and my own. Right? That's a Sadducee move. Now, the danger, the rub in that move is that the further you move in a direction of saying, well, I will define my own life, 
is, of course, correlative with how far away you move from God. And the further you move away from God, the harder it is to recognize him. So much so that, that God has shown up in the flesh face to face with the Sadducees and they haven't recognized him. Right? You can't get much more obtuse than that. Which is a really interesting question because we all sit here and nod our heads and think, boy, I know, I know both I have things in common with the Sadducees and I can certainly think of people in the community that have things in common with the Sadducees, but how many of us are willing to ask the question, would I recognize Jesus if he was sitting right next to me? Right, that's what's happening. The Sadducees are right next to Jesus and they don't recognize God. If Jesus sat down next to you, would you recognize that it was God? Or do we have so much in common with the Sadducees that it wouldn't really be that apparent to us? that we might make the same mistake, being so concerned about uh, what we want to be busy about. So if you find God to be distant, I understand that. I've found many times God to feel very distant and been very frustrated by that reality. The question is, though, can there be good reason that God makes himself distant in a way that might actually be good for me or in which that he has some kind of purpose that he's executing and I shouldn't simply excuse myself from obedience or seeking after him even in the midst of that perceived distance. And of course, I think the answer is yes. Now, I think an easy analogy is to think of children in general. And I mean that as an analogy because we are God's children. And we are very often not any more mature than children in general when it comes to our relationship with God. We might think of the prodigal probably goes to the father and says, Dad, I'm pretty sure I know how to spend my inheritance better than you do. Is he right? What does he want to do? He wants to go squander all of it. And that's exactly what he will do. He doesn't have any more wisdom than the father, but doesn't feel close to the father, wants a story that's different than the story the father wants for him, and says, I'm going to go and, and do what I want to do, and distances himself from the father. Or we could think of other children, say a child who's acting unacceptably. A child who is just being rotten and whether being young and throwing tantrums or being an older adolescent and being obnoxious, right? Do you approach that child in the same way? Of course not. But a parent often with either enters in in discipline or withdraws from the child, communicating, you don't get access to me in the same way as when you're being obedient. In fact, if I gave you the same access when you're disobedient to me that I do when you're obedient, then you wouldn't know the difference and I would simply be enforcing and encouraging your ill behavior. And so if God was to simply draw near in the midst of us being very obnoxious or very foolish or throwing a tantrum, that might be the worst thing for us. We could even further think of a child that just wants to go their own particular way. Right? And this is actually very much what we see the, the, uh, the Sadducees doing. Say a child that defines his life by being independent and strong-willed and gets into trouble and is told, you know, unless you clean the garage, you're not going to a party tonight. And the task is overwhelming. It's impossible to get the garage cleaned before the party that's occurring that night. And so one of the siblings comes out and helps. And the garage gets cleaned and the parents come out and surprise said, wow, you worked really hard to pull this off. And the child could tell the truth, but instead the child says, yeah, I did work really hard. And in that decision, rather than moving towards truth, the child says, I'm defining myself by my independence and my strength. And if I can adopt a false narrative 
that continues to uphold that false narrative by which I find significance and identity and it gets me what I want, which is the party tonight, that's fine, parents. I don't care what you think because I don't want to be close to you. I want to have what I want. And this is exactly what the Sadducees are doing. They're saying, okay, everybody recognizes that this old man who's been crippled for life is now walking. But you know what? Peter and John, we don't want you to talk about it anymore because we're going to create a different story and we sure don't like the story you're telling. And in that, yes, we, we may be adopting a false narrative, but we don't really care because we get what we want and we're not interested in being close to God. So we say that ways... The ways in which God can be distant can either be God loving us by being distant or it may be us doubling down in our foolishness that makes him distant. Either way, that distance has a very uh, reasonable aspect to it and should not be utterly shocking to us. So, what is the difference then between the Sadducees and the disciples as they face this miracle that's been done in the midst of everyone gathered in Jerusalem. Well, I would say in a word, it's faith. So this leads us to our second question. What difference does faith make? Well, I think it makes a pretty substantial difference in every way. We are already noticing how the Sadducees, for their lack of faith, are having to create a fiction. Now, this fiction is their exercise of control of the story. Why do they want to control the story? Well, in a word, because they're afraid. Because if what is, the disciples are saying is true, that means that there is resurrection, and that means everything that they've done in their life matters a whole lot. It matters that there will be, because there will be rewards and punishments. And so they say, we don't like this, and we don't like the authority you're starting to influence over these 5,000 people, and so we want you to stop speaking in Jesus' name. We don't want that story getting any more traction culturally. You're just going to be quiet now. Now, they won't obey, but notice what a life without faith looks like. Fear, an endeavor to control, and an inability to recognize God's work in this world. That is the road of a faithless walk. It's a road of a Sadducean walk. I will be dominated by fear and anxiety because I'm deciding everything for myself. I'm pursuing what I want and have no reference to God, so there's no ultimate, no ultimate meaning. This anxiety and fear produces a great desire to control everything around me, and so I'm going to control this story, and we're going to lock up Peter and James, Peter and John, excuse me. And then out of that, uh, we're going to live a life in which we have, we have no ability to recognize God's work in this world and ultimately, because we can't recognize God's work in this world, we live a joyless life. That is a life without faith. That is a Sadducean walk. Now, in contrast to that, notice the disciples. Right? Same events, same historical context, but the disciples decide to navigate it in a completely different way. And in verse 7, we read that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter proceeds to speak with all boldness, having been asked, How is this man raised? Peter not only says, now remember, Peter's speaking to the most powerful people in his community. He says, not only was this man raised by the power of the name of Jesus, but he says, don't forget, it's the Jesus that you killed. That's pretty brave. In fact, they marvel at the boldness of those speaking in verse 13. 
commenting also that they're speaking rather articulately for being uneducated men. Right? No fear. Right? God's doing what God is doing, and we are along for the ride. They demonstrate other, utter confidence. They're told not to speak, and they say, listen, you know, we've got to speak what God gives us to speak, and we're going to tell the story of what he's done in Jesus. Not intimidated and not trying to control the situation, simply trying to be faithful. And then they enter into joy and friendship uh, as a result, which we will get to in a little bit more detail in a moment. But do you see the difference of the two roads? Right? The road of, of saying, yeah, I don't think God is that important. I'm going to decide life for myself leads to fear and anxiety and control and a lack of joy. And the road of the disciples, right, which says, actually, I think God is very much at work and I care very much what he thinks and I'm going to allow his revelation to inform what is happening in my life and the decisions I'm making results in confidence, a lack of fear, a boldness in moving forward, a willingness to be obedient, and ultimately friendship and joy that the Sadducees utterly lack, which, of course, they have to lack because if you, allow, I mean, if you just back up for a minute and you live in a world in which every individual in your community is making sure that they get theirs, inevitably that will be a community in which everyone devours each other because for me to get mine, I have to take from you. Right? But if God is providing everything that we need in Christ Jesus, I don't need to take from you. I can celebrate what you have. Right? So these are two incredibly distinct roads, remarkably in such a, a, a brief story around one event. Right? And so it leads us to that last question, who do you want to be? Do you want to be a Sadducee or do you want to be a disciple? Now, don't think that's an easy or silly question. Remember the Sadducees, our Right? If we were talking about Sadducees and disciples in the context of the church today, we would still call both of them Christians. Right? So we would say, do you want to be a Christian who pretends and really seeks to execute everything that he or she wants, or do you want to be a Christian that really lays down their life and picks up the cross? This is the distinction we're, we're looking at in two, two Jewish groups that coexisted side by side. Right? They both are worshipers of Yahweh but choose to express and engage that worship very differently. And now, right, as we exist in the church, do we want to look at the Sadducees or do we want to be like the disciples? In verse 21, the entire community is praising God for what has occurred. And look at verse 23. How interesting when Peter and John are let go, where do they go? Or to whom do they go? They're friends. What a picture that even in the early church that... Uh, there's a community that's being built around those who profess faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that that is what informs their life together. And they're bound and knit together in friendship. Of course, they experience joy as they worship. What happens? They praise God for his power in the midst of the situation. They express utter confidence in God's control. We we may not like the way the story is going, but we, we believe that God has everything under control. And then they ask, right, that everything would be good at their jobs and that their marriages would be secure and their kids would grow up and go to good schools and that they would all be financially secure and the church would have a new building. Oh, some of you have no idea what I'm even talking about. Right? Are you looking at this passage with me, right? 
What do they pray for? Bravery. To continue to speak the name of Jesus because they know the story is changing. In chapters 1 through 3 of Acts, right, Luke is constantly commenting on the, on the, um, the situation between the early church and the people, which was that they found uh, they were received well. They were welcomed. The people thought highly of the early church. But as a result of the healing in chapter 3 and the rapid growth of the community, the song changes completely. And from, the, from this point forward in the book of Acts, what do you have? Persecution. And the, the disciples know that the story is changing. And for all the things they could have prayed for, not least of which would be for the story to change, right? Hey, God, uh, we don't like what's going on here. And we, this seems to be getting a little nasty. We don't like going to jail. Would you, can we rewind a little bit and would you allow us to find favor again with the people? Not a completely unreasonable prayer, but it's not what they pray. They pray for bravery to face what they know. Is they, they say, if we continue down this course, right, the sons of the serpent have no choice but to react violently against us. Any disciple of Jesus knows that to hold to the course of discipleship, there is no alternative but for the sons of the serpent to react violently against you. They don't pray for that to not be the story. They pray for bravery in the midst of that story. It's a completely different, a completely different desire, a completely different prayer. But it's one that I think would characterize, you know, in the question, who do you want to be? A disciple who prays for bravery or a Sadducee who prays for everything hard to go away? You may have been following to some extent uh, the story of Kate Bowler. Kate Bowler is a, a professor uh, in theology and uh, a Christian believer and she was diagnosed a little over a year ago with terminal cancer. She had kind of a, an interesting reaction to that. As an academic, she felt compelled that she had to write as much as possible to, to kind of capture this last moment of her life and then, and then somehow she would be kind of liberated and, and ready uh, for God to take her home. And so she wrote profusely and out of that came a, a particular article uh, that essentially it, um, that she ended up sending off to the New York Times. She thought nothing would come of it. The New York Times put it on the front page of one of their sections. And the title, I forget the exact title, but it was something like, The Mainline Church Has No Answers For Me Anymore. And the notion was this. Um, you know, in growing up in the mainline churches, she'd always heard, well, God loves you, and God wants the best for you, and if you live a reasonably good life, uh, loving others and not being too selfish, good things will happen to you. And what she was saying, in essence, was, I did that, and I have terminal cancer. So now what do you have to say to me? And the point being that, no, the, you know, the churches that have walked away from the resurrection and walked away from the cross as a paradigm for Christian life don't have anything to say to her. They don't have any answer to human suffering. So after she wrote this, she was just flooded with letters from around the country of people going through incredibly difficult things, some angry and having moved away from God and saying, like a Sadducee, I don't care at all what God thinks, and some moving toward God and, and seeking to be closer to him in the midst of their suffering. And Kate recognized that she had to make the same decision. I'm angry of what God has done. I'm angry when I think about what will happen to my husband. I'm angry about my, leaving my kids. I'm angry about all the people who come to my door and give a casserole and tell me God has some purpose in this to which her husband's reply is uh, most often, gosh, I'd love to hear that purpose. Will you tell me? 
which they usually scurry away quickly from the door, realizing the foolishness of uh, speaking above their pay grade. But she had to make this choice, a Sadducean road or a road of discipleship. And this is what her surprised her in, in her road as she wrestled with, with all of this. Um, she, she writes, I'm sure I would have ignored uh, the article if it had not reminded me of something that happened to me. She's referring to something that she had been reading. Something that I felt uncomfortable telling anyone. It seemed too odd and too simplistic to say what I knew to be true, that when I was sure I was going to die, I didn't feel angry, I felt loved. At a time when I should have felt abandoned by God, I was not reduced to ashes. I felt like I was floating, floating on the love and prayers of all those who hummed around me like worker bees, bringing notes and flowers and warm socks and quilts embroidered with words of encouragement. They came in like priests and mirrored back to me the face of Jesus. When they sat beside me, my hand in their hands, my own suffering began to feel like it had revealed to me the suffering of others, a world of those who, like me, are stumbling in the debris of dreams they thought they were entitled to and plans they didn't realize they had made. You hear in Kate's words the two roads. The roads of the Sadducees leads nothing to uh, leads to nothing other than the debris of dreams they thought they were entitled to and plans they didn't realize they'd made. That's where the road of discipleship leads to that place of understanding, goodness, in the midst even of a story that I would not have written for myself, I know the love of God. And in the mercy and compassion that I receive from others and that I extend to others, I know the face of Christ. Who do you want to be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning that you are no stranger to our sufferings and that you have entered in to show us compassion and kindness to take our sufferings upon yourself and to make us new. We admit that at times you feel very distant and we also confess that when you feel distant we often remove ourselves from you and seek to head in a different direction. And we ask that you would both forgive us and help us to see more clearly. Help us to be more patient. Help us to have the faith that the disciples exhibit. And in that, to know the confidence and the boldness and the joy. We recognize that all roads away from you lead to death and destruction. And so we pray that you would help us to cling more tightly uh, to that narrow road that leads to life. Would you meet us uh, here at this table and encourage us on that journey? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.